Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the executive pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit MySelfland.com. John chapter 6, verse 1. A couple of very famous stories. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Uh, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, okay? And if you read the same story, this, this story of the feeding of the 5,000, it's in, it's in all the Gospels. So you can learn details from one, some that are not in the others. If you read in Matthew and, and Luke, you'll find out that the reason Jesus is going to the other side is because him and the disciples are exhausted, okay? They've been doing nonstop ministry. In fact, it says that they were ministering so much that they didn't even have time to eat, and so they've been ministering and ministering and ministering. And so finally, Jesus is like, I've got to get these disciples away. We're going to get a break. We've got to get away from these crowds. They hop in a boat, and they take off to the other side of the lake. But this crowd is so desperate that the crowd runs and follows them around the lake and meets them at the other side, okay? How would you feel? How would you feel, right? Those of you who are parents with little children, speaking of little children, how do you feel at the end of a day? Some days you just feel fried, right? Your kids aren't as good as mine. I just, at the end of the day, I just feel great. And uh, they don't tire me out at all. No, just kidding. That's obviously not true. Um, but, you know, your kids have been emotionally draining you and physically draining you. And finally in the evening, you're just like, I need half an hour to myself. I, I've heard that happens to some parents. And, and, uh, and so you, you go downstairs to get your half an hour by yourself to recharge and they follow you down there. Daddy, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. How do you feel in that moment? Okay? This is what Jesus and the disciples are having with these crowds. Minister nonstop. Give, 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 give. We need a break. Go to the other side of the lake. The crowd's like, we need more Jesus. And they come around and meet him on the other side. And I want you to notice how Jesus responds. In fact, I'm going to jump to Matthew for just a moment just to show you how he responds here. Matthew 14, 14, because it doesn't have this, this part of it in John 6, but it's the same story. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So this is, I just, I just had to stop here for a moment, and we just have to wonder at Jesus. You know, even here in his human body, okay, he came to earth, and he lived all the things we, we lived, and so he lived exhaustion, and he lived tiredness, the God of the universe. And even in that exhaustion and that tiredness, you stretch him to the limits, and people want more. They're harassing him, and still the only thing that comes out of him is compassion. And he looks out over them, exhausted and tired, and even in his exhaustion and tiredness, he looks at them, and he looks at them with compassion. I mean, this is just a stunning aspect of Jesus' heart. It's a never-ending river of love and compassion towards us. I mean, you nail him to a cross, and all that comes out is forgiveness and love. You push him to the max in his human body when he was here on earth to tiredness and exhaustion. Still, all that comes out is compassion and love. This is actually Jesus' heart towards you and me. Sometimes we get exhausted and we feel unloved and so we think that Jesus is upset at us or he's distant with us or he's angry with us or he's, you know, we're unspiritual or whatever. We, that's how we feel and we think Jesus is tired out of us because I've just confessed the same sin for the thousandth time so obviously he's exhausted or, you know, I've done all these bad things or I'm not spiritual and I haven't prayed enough. We think Jesus must be exhausted with loving me. It's not possible. It's not possible. And he still loves this crowd. 
In fact, I think it's an encouragement as I meditate on this week. It's an encouragement to me to keep following him around and bugging him. I mean, that's what this crowd, this crowd would have missed out on ministry. They would have missed out on a miracle. Had they just stayed, had they been polite, had they just stayed back and said, you know what, let's give Jesus his space, they would have missed out on a whole bunch more healing and a whole bunch more ministry and a whole bunch more teaching and touch from Jesus. They said, you know what, he might be exhausted, but we want more of him. They come around, they harass him, and they get more of him. And we as Christians need to grab a hold of that somewhere because a lot of us are being way too polite with Jesus. And it really doesn't have to do with being polite. It has to do with a lack of faith. But we don't bang after Jesus. We don't bang on the door. We don't tire him out. We don't try to exhaust him. We just feel he's distant from me. I'm going to be distant from him. And as a result, we miss out on lots of touch and love and ministry from Jesus. This crowd, though, follows him around. They won't stop bugging him. And so... John chapter 6, we pick up again in verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. And lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And this is the hospitality of Jesus. He didn't ask these people to come, but now that they've come, he says, we're not going to send them home empty-handed, right? I mean, some of you or many of you probably have grandmas or mothers that are like this, right? You go to their house, it doesn't matter when you go to their house, you know, they might even come to the door with rollers in their hair or whatever, right? And, uh, but if you show up at their house, you're not going home empty-handed. You're going home with something. You're going home with pie, that's my favorite, or butter tarts, or some kind of sticky bread or something, but you're going home with food, right? And that's the hospitality, okay? And some of you have, da- if you know, you, some of you have dads who are very generous, who are well off. Every time you go out to eat, for sure, they're going to pick up the bill. You know, there's a piece of God's heart in that that we see in our parents, And so Jesus didn't ask these people. He was trying to get away from these people. They follow him around, but when they show up in this wilderness spot, he says, there's no way I'm sending them home hungry. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of God. You don't show up. You can't come into Jesus' presence and go home empty. You can't show up in Jesus' presence and go home empty. He says, I'm going to feed these people. That's his hospitality, right? But anyway, I want you to notice here that Jesus frames it in the form of a question, where do we buy bread, right? Now, of course, the thing is, he knows already he, how he's going to do it. He knows what he wants to do. He knows he wants to feed them, and he knows how he wants to do it. But he puts it in the form of a question. So he says to Philip, where are we going to buy bread? Already, again, knowing what he wants to do. So why would he ask Philip this in a question? Why wouldn't he just say, Philip, here's what we're going to do, okay? And the answer we find in the very next verse says this. He said this to test him, to test Philip. Okay, for he himself knew what he would do. And I just love this about Jesus. I can imagine him, he has a little smirk. He knows Philip is exhausted, okay? He knows the state of Philip's faith, but he just wants to test him a little bit. He wants to test his heart. And so he has a little smirk on his face, and he says, Philip, you know, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And of course, they're sitting out in this wilderness area, thousands of people. I mean, we call it the feeding of the 5,000, but that's because there was 5,000 men uh, when you add in, you know, the women that would have been there and the children for sure, we're probably looking at 15,000, you know, minimum and many more. So a huge crowd. And he looks out over this whole thing and there's no stores around. There's not a 7-Eleven. There's not a superstore. And even if there was, how are you going to get food for that many thousands? But he just looks out and there's nothing around and there's all these people and I can just see him hiding the little smirk. And he says to Philip, where are we going to get, f- where are we going to get bread for all these people? And of course, we're going to see in a few minutes, Philip completely freaks out and fails the test, as we so often do. 
There's not enough food. There's not enough, there's not enough money. You know, I've never seen that much money it would take to fill, fill that many people. But I think Jesus is having a lot of fun here. And one of the things I want to take out of this I think is so important that I want you to get in this message is one of the most powerful, wonderful truths you can ever learn, and that is that everything in life is a test. Jesus could have just told him. He could have just said, here's what I'm going to do. And Philip would have gone, oh, wow, that's neat. But Jesus doesn't operate that way. Everything in this life is for a purpose, and everything in this life is a test. He puts the question to Philip. He wants Philip to feel the weight of the problem. He wants Philip to feel the weight of his lack. So that he can do a couple of things. Well, there's three things. I won't talk about the first one very much, but I will talk about the second one. The first thing is, everything in life is a test. God tests us to grow our character. He tests us to grow our character. And he puts us in stretching circumstances where we desperately need him, where we think we can't go, and he puts us there to test our character. We could say lots. We could do a whole series just on that one, but I'm going to leave that one for now. Secondly, though, he's testing Philip's heart to see how attuned Philip is to what he's wanting to do in this situation. See, like it says in the verse there, Jesus already knew. And the thing you have to realize is Jesus, is he never sends people home empty-handed, but he, there's different ways that he provides for us. Sometimes he provides for us through the natural. There's many times in the New Testament where Jesus met with people and he didn't feed them supernaturally. He fed them naturally. He caused the rain to fall and the crops to grow and he gave people jobs and work to do so that they could earn money to buy food and he would send them back into their homes and they could eat in their homes. That's every bit as much God's provision as if he breaks five loaves and two fishes. Amen? Amen. So Jesus doesn't always do it the same way. In fact, he rarely does anything the same way. He just loves to be creative. And so what he's doing in part of this test is he tested them since he already knew what he was going to do, but he wants to know, is Philip walking in tomb of spirit? See, when you're walking in fellowship with the Lord, and I mean fellowship, not just I'm going to church every week, not just, you know, I, I have these beliefs, I've always had them, I've had them for like 20 years, I gave my life to Jesus, and I've had a few experiences with him, but I haven't talked to him much lately. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about fellowship. When you're walking with the Lord and you have fellowship with him, and you spend time with him, and you love him, you hear from him, there's something that begins to happen in your spirit. You begin to have a sense as you pray and as you move into situations. You might know, not know exactly. Jesus wasn't expecting Philip to know exactly what Jesus was going to do. But if Philip had been walking in tune with the Spirit, if he had really been having that heart connect with Jesus, he would have had some idea, Jesus, I think you're about to do something crazy. So Jesus is testing him to see, are you in tune with the Spirit? And Jesus is constantly testing us for that as well. Are you in tune with the Spirit? In this situation, you go into that hospital room and you're sitting with that guy who's dying or suffering or whatever. Do you have a sense of what the Spirit is wanting to do in that situation? Sometimes it might be a healing. Sometimes it might be, let's celebrate death is coming. Sometimes it might be, you know, conviction. Like this, this person needs to repent, whatever it is. Do you have, are you in tune with the Spirit? Do you know what the Spirit is doing in a given situation? Jesus is testing Philip for that. Of course, as we're going to see, Philip fails that test. Absolutely, and that makes me feel very good because we all fail many, many times. So the third thing he's doing is he's testing Philip's faith. And another way of saying that would be, does Philip have a revelation of Jesus that is bigger than this problem? 
Does, does Philip have a revelation? I think sometimes we don't know what faith is, and I think there's many aspects of faith. This isn't the only thing that faith is. But one thing or one aspect, certainly, of what faith is, is as you move into a problem situation, as you move into an obstacle, as you move into a season of suffering, do you have a revelation of Jesus in your heart that is bigger than the issue you're facing so that you can trust him through it? Or are, is your revelation of Jesus smaller so that you panic? And so Jesus wants to see, we got 15,000 people here and not a supermarket in sight. And Jesus says, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And he wants to see, does Philip have a faith in Jesus big enough that says, I don't know where we're going to get it, Jesus, but I want to see what you're going to do. Or is Philip going to go, oh, well, we know what he's going to do. He's going to go, oh, like we so often do, right? And he's going to panic. But Jesus is testing his faith. He's testing his revelation of how big, how, how able is he to trust in Jesus, how attuned with the Spirit is Philip. And the thing you have to realize again is this is just one story in the New Testament. Philip isn't the only person that Jesus ever wanted to test. And this isn't the only time in Philip's life he ever got tested. Jesus is constantly testing all of us on these things. See, everything in life is a test. I sometimes think of our life here on this earth, it's kind of like a, 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 a play, like a puppets or or dolls or something, and it's on this kind of stage, and, and we're kind of living out this life, and it feels like this is real life, but what we don't realize is behind everything, just behind the stage is God. And so we're playing out our little piddly lives on this stage, and we think everything there is to life is what's happening on the stage, and we don't realize that everything in this life is just a shadow of something far more real, something far more substantial that is to come and that behind everything is God and that everything that happens to us on this piddly little stage is about one thing and one thing only and that is him. He looms over and behind everything. So everything that happens to you in your life, everything, everything that happens to you in your life, nothing is an accident. Nothing is an accident. Everything is part of his grand design and plan. It doesn't mean that he causes people to sin. It doesn't mean that he likes it when evil things happen. But everything that happens, we have got to get a sovereign mindset to understand the majesty and the sovereignty of God that everything that happens is specifically part of his plan for him to reveal himself to you. So when you hit a problem, that problem is an excuse. You, you I mean, we all say, right, in, our, in, the, in the left side of our of our brains, right? In the logical side of our brains, we learn in Sunday school, you know, what can Jesus do? Yeah, Jesus can do everything. And we say that. So all of us here knows that. And then we go out and the washer breaks down and we freak out over a $500 bill. Where am I going to give the money? Right? Well, you're picture of Jesus. You're freaking out over 500 bucks. You just came from Sunday school and said Jesus can do everything. You freak out over a $500 bill. Your picture of Jesus is 500 and less. See, the size of the problem that makes you freak out is the size of your revelation of how amazing Jesus is. So everything in life is about Jesus growing you in your revelation of him. Emotional problems, whether it be depression, anxiety, marriage problems, physical problems, problems at home, problems at work, problems with your business. Every problem is designed to show you something more about who Jesus is. So Jesus looks at Philip and he's like, I just want to show this guy that 15, feeding 15,000 people is nothing to me. 
Philip is about to get a massive upgrade of who Jesus is. Everything in life is about revealing and getting to know and increasing your picture and capacity to trust in him. That's why we have to get a sovereign mindset. Everything is ultimately in his control. I wonder how many widows have discovered God to be their protector and comforter. But they have to go through losing their husbands to find it out. I mean, Anna in the Bible, one of the most powerful prayer warriors in the Bible, Anna, had a tremendously powerful prayer ministry, praying in the Messiah, praying in Jesus first coming, but she had to lose her husband for that ministry to come in. Everything is about God. It's that horrible thing. I mean, does God like it when horrible things happen to us? No. He loves us very much. Is God making people sin? Certainly not. But all of it is part of his plan, and it's only when you hit these suffering, these bouts of suffering and these problems that he can reveal things to us about himself. You can't find him to be your comforter until you need comforting. You can't find him to be your provider until you need him to provide for you. Amen? Amen. I've talked to people who have gone through horrific abuse, horrible things, horrible, awful things. Did God make those things happen? Absolutely not. But was he big enough to make them not happen? Absolutely yes. He didn't make them happen, yet in his sovereignty, he allows them to happen. Why did he allow them to happen? And I've talked to people who, after going through it, and after encountering God, and over the years growing in him, they have found his goodness to be bigger than the evil they went through. And now they're able to turn around, and they're able to minister to people they could never have ministered before, people who've also gone through horrific things because they went through something, and suddenly through it all you go, was that abuse horrific? Was it awful? Yes! But at some point, we have to be able to look back on our lives and see that every single thing is under God's sovereign control. And by the way, that is some of the absolute best news in all of the universe I can give you. Nothing in your life is an accident. See, there's some preachers out there that preach not against the sovereignty of God, essentially. They may not say it that way. But they'll say that bad things don't come from God. God didn't want those things for you. To which I ask the question then, then why did they happen? If God didn't want that thing to happen to me, if that wasn't part of his plan, if that wasn't part of his will, then why did it happen to me? They think it's good news when they preach it. It's terrible news. Because that means either God's not strong enough to stop it from happening, or it's my fault. And if it's my fault, that's terrifying news. If, you know, my relative, my close family member died of cancer because, well, God actually wanted them to live to 120, but they died of cancer, shoot, then it must be their fault because of faith. That's terrifying because when I get up tomorrow morning, I have to keep my faith levels high. Because if my faith levels aren't high enough, I could, I could step out the door and... Get smoked by, I don't know, a Canada goose falling out of the air, or a <laughs> truck hits me on the way to work, or I could, get, I could catch a deadly virus. It's not part of God's will, but if I don't have faith, it could hit me. No, that's horrible news. If I don't have enough faith tomorrow morning, I could get up, my kids could go to school, and they could just die, and it wouldn't have any purpose other than I failed. That's terrible news. The best news in the universe is God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Which means that doesn't mean you're never going to have pain. 
It doesn't mean you won't get killed. It doesn't mean you won't get cancer. But it does mean that if something like that happens, it's not because of your fault or something. It's because he's at work and it's part of his good plan and he's trying to reveal something of himself to you. And all things can work together for good if God is sovereign. So, back to the feeding of the multitude story, Philip responds. Jesus says, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So a denarius was like a day's wages. He's, it's basically, you know, maybe 30,000 bucks. $30,000 would not be enough to buy all these people bread. Now, let's just stop here for just a moment. Time out. And let's just admit something. Philip is absolutely correct, right? He's not lying here. He's not saying something false. He's right. 30,000 bucks. We got over 15,000 people here. Not a store in sight. Last minute. You're not going to feed them all for even 30,000 bucks. Philip is absolutely right, but the problem here is he's failing the test because Jesus isn't testing his analytical skills. He's not testing his math skills. He's testing his faith. But Philip's mind is completely consumed with human reality. And this is what gets all of us, isn't it? We go into our problems, we sit in Sunday school, and we say, Jesus can do everything. Oh, hopefully that wasn't distracting to too many of you. Um, fly poop or something. I'm not sure what that was, but anyway. Where was I? <laughs> I gotta go back to my notes here for a second. There's other Counting skills. Sovereignty, faith. Yes, yeah, so anyway, so you go into a problem, right? You've got your marriage problem or whatever, right? And so you look at the, the situation. Hey, my spouse hasn't changed for 10 years. It's hopeless. And you look at, this is what he said to me last week, and this is what he said to me yesterday, and this is what she did a month ago, and you look at all the human realities of your situation, and your human realities, you might be 100% correct, just like Philip. Or your, your business problem, or whatever, you're looking at the numbers, and you're looking at it, and you're 100% correct, you're, you're only saying true things, is your situation is hopeless, but the thing is, like Philip, you fail the test, when you focus on those things rather than on the glory and the majesty of Jesus. Because that was the whole point. The point is, you're right, there isn't enough money to feed them all. But is Jesus bigger than feeding 15,000 people? Is Jesus bigger than your marriage problems? Is Jesus bigger than your business problem? And the answer is, obviously, again, we know, yes. But Jesus tests our faith. He grows our faith. Now the question is, why do I have to go through problems and tough times in order for God to grow me in faith? Like, why do I have to, you know, and it's the way God wired us. You know, why can't, why can't I just go to Sunday school, learn Jesus can do everything, and then go out and have faith like that? Wouldn't that be awesome? I thought that would be amazing. I could just learn a characteristic of Jesus and then go out and live as if it's true. It'd be amazing. But the problem is the way God has wired our brains, he wired us, and Stefan has talked lots about this over the last couple of years, you know, we've got this logical side of our brains, which is important. We have to learn things there, and it's important that we learn about God there. But the fact of the matter is we don't live out of that logical side of our brains. You can't just go into a classroom and learn a bunch of facts about Jesus, and you get it. Your feelings and where you make your decisions out of and where you live out of is a different part of your brain that's completely relational. You can only learn it about Jesus, not by sitting in a classroom and writing and memorizing facts about him. You can only learn it by doing life with him and learning it with him. And this is why we actually need suffering to grow in our revelation of Jesus. 
Sometimes I hear these preachers talking about, I, there was a conference once a couple of years ago, and these preachers got up there, and they were saying, this year we're making a commitment to no suffering for one year. I think, oh my goodness. First of all, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard here on earth before Jesus comes back. Second of all, you don't want to grow. You don't want to get to know Jesus more. Because it's when we suffer. It's when I go into lack. I can learn a bunch of facts about Jesus in the classroom. But it's only when I go into deep waters and he pulls me through. I have an experience with him. My relationship grows with him. And now I know something about Jesus in my heart. Suffering is necessary to increase our revelation of who Jesus is. It's one of the main ways for us to really get to know him and experience him. So Jesus takes Philip into this situation. He corners him, and then he helps him feel the brunt. He says, we're going to feed these people. And Philip goes, we can't do it. And of course, I'm going to summarize the rest of the story because I want to get to Mary's faith as well. We want to compare Mary's faith to Philip's faith. But anyway, the rest of the story, it's an amazing story, right? The rest of John chapter 6 there. So Jesus says, where are we going to get all the, you know, where are we going to find bread with these people? 30,000 bucks wouldn't be enough for us. And then Jesus says, okay, he says to the disciples, uh, do we have any food here? And Philip's, you know, lying on the ground doing deep breathing exercises. And, and uh, so Andrew comes over and he's like, well, I, I think he's kind of joking. I think he's kind of rolling his eyes. Him and the other disciples is like, well, Jesus, because they can't even believe it. We're going to feed, we're exhausted. These people shouldn't have even come here. We're trying to get away from them. He says, well, we got it. There's a little boy here. He's got five pieces of bread and a couple of fish. And Jesus says, oh, that'll be great. Would you tell everybody to sit down in groups of 50? And I can just see the disciples now kind of rolling their eyes going, oh, man, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> and they're walking around. Could you, could you 50 sit down? And it's like, why? Are you guys going to feed us? Or, uh, uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, just keep moving. You 50, would you sit down, please? You 50, would you sit down, please? Would you sit down? That group of you over there, and they get them all to sit down. And they're sitting there and they're going, I wonder what he's up to. I wonder what the master's up to. And then he lifts up this little lunch and he says a little prayer. And he just starts calmly breaking it off and filling these baskets. And, and at this point, I can just see the disciples going as he just keeps, and that basket gets full. And then, Philip, would you, you know, get up off the grass there already, buddy, and, and go feed those guys over there. Go feed that group over there. And he fills another one and then they go feed. And everybody's just going, oh my goodness. This is awesome, right? I can't even believe it. And you just have a new revelation of Jesus. He took us through this. We're experiencing him in a new way. At the end of it, the whole group says, this is the prophet Moses talked about. They have a whole brand new revelation of Jesus because they've just gone through something together with him. But to start, we've got Philip panicking. $30,000 wouldn't be enough to feed all these people, right? In the end, again, I want us to be, you know, gracious to Philip. We're all immature. He had immature faith. He's not a bad person. He was also exhausted. How many of us pass our faith tests when we're exhausted? That's usually when they come, isn't it? Jesus doesn't usually test our faith when we're sitting in church on Sunday morning when we're feeling good and sitting pretty, right? It's when we go out there. It's when we're tired that he stretches us. It's when we're tired that he tests us. But anyway, I want to contrast this now with Mary faith. Mary faith versus Philip faith. And we're going to go to John 2 now in the turning of water into wine story. Also a famous story. And it says this in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, a lot of us fail to emotionally connect with this story because we're Mennonites, so none of us has wine at our weddings, right? So, <laughs> you know, we kind of read the story, and it's like, well, what's the big deal? Like, you know, live with it, right? I mean, who cares? Um, 
And but they had a lot more fun at their weddings than we do, though. So uh, uh, not, not because of that, I'm sure. <laughs> Stupid thing to say. Um, I mean, you have to realize a couple of things. First of all, weddings were a big, much bigger deal back then. Okay, uh, they, they could last for a few days. Hospitality in Asian culture is a much bigger deal. So you're taking these people in, you're feeding them, you're having a good time for a few days. And the other thing you have to realize is they didn't have anything else. They didn't have, you know, 25 different pops to choose from and different kinds of punches. You had, you know, probably bad tasting, lukewarm water, or you had wine. And so you have a culture that was, that was really built around wine. Wine was an important thing, of, uh, part of every meal. It was an important part of hospitality. It was an important part of wet weddings. It was, would have been very embarrassing, very embarrassing to run out of wine at a wedding, okay? And so Jesus' mother is concerned about this, and she tells them they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And I absolutely love this interaction between Jesus and his mom, don't you? Because you just have to remember again, this is the God of the universe. He has come down, he's taken on human flesh. He has no beginning and no end. I mean, he just speaks, he snaps his fingers, galaxies come into being, and, and, or they can disappear. I mean, he just, this is the God of the universe, and he has a mom, and she can boss him around. <laughs> so, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She won't take it no for an answer, not even from God. Okay? This, I just relate to this with my own mother, for sure. Not the part about me being God, but um, I have to be careful. She's down there laughing. Okay, anyway, she's still laughing, so that's a good sign for me. Anyway, fill up faith, marry faith. Fill up faith, oh, there's no way we can do it. Okay? Mary has a completely different understanding about Jesus. She just, we have a problem. She acknowledges the problem. She doesn't deny it's there. She doesn't pretend there's wine when there isn't. She doesn't pretend she's feeling good when she's not. She doesn't pretend her marriage is good when it's, when it's, not. it's not. She's not pretending. She had, acknowledges the facts. We're out of wine. But there's no panic. There's no worry. There's no freaking out. It's just a simple statement of fact. We're out of wine. Look at the servants. Do whatever he tells you. Now, the amazing thing is, I don't, you know, how, as I was thinking this week and praying and looking through this stuff, it's, one of the things that amazes me is, you know, how could she be so confident he'd be able to do a miracle here or that he would do a miracle here? Because the thing you have to understand is this is Jesus' first miracle. Okay, he wasn't doing miracles. It's not like, you know, 16 years old and Mary's like, I'm late home. Uh, Jesus, can you quickly uh, snap your fingers and let's have supper? Or, you know, can you cook up something? I just burned the chicken. Can you unburn it or whatever? He has not done any miracles yet. He's lived a normal human life. Yet here in this moment, she's faced with a, with a problem, a serious problem, completely trusts. Jesus actually is going to care about this. And number two, he can do something about it. Just completely trust. How is it? I mean, we look in uh, John 2 later in this chapter, just to confirm for you, this is the first of his signs. This is the first miracle Jesus ever performed. So how did Mary have such confidence in Jesus' ability and his desire to do a miracle here if she had never seen it. Well, I think I know part of her secret at least. I don't know, maybe the whole thing. No doubt she had a whole, you know, full uh, walk with the Lord that contributed to this, but I'll show you one part of her secret. If we jump to the book of Luke, chapter 2, it says this in Luke 2, verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What things? 
Uh, it's talking there in Luke chapter 2, verse 9, that God had given her a bunch of pro- uh, prophecies and promises. And it says in 2, verse 19, it says that she pondered these things. She treasured them up in her heart. She had spent, now, it, in fact, it goes further. If we just go uh, a bunch of verses later in the same chapter, it repeats it again. It wants to emphasize it. Luke chapter 2, 51, it says this, and his mother, that's Jesus' mother, treasured up all these things in her heart. And that verse is taking place a few years later when Jesus is a little bit older. He's 12 years old at that point. So we see this thing emphasized twice in the same chapter of Luke chapter 2 that with, that with, that with regards to all the words of God about Jesus and the prophecies and the ways of God that Mary had spent years treasuring up in her heart the words of God and the ways of God. She had spent years investing in the secret place, in the deep places of her heart. She had spent years treasuring and pondering in the deep recesses of her heart, the things of God, the words of God, the promises of God, the prophecies, the ways of God, she had treasured them in her heart. And so without having to even see, even seen a miracle before, when the time comes and she needs Jesus to step in and do something, she has trained her heart. She has trained her heart to be fertile soil for faith. She's trained her heart. She's been on this stage doing life, but she has realized that behind it all is God. And so her heart is fertile soil for faith. And so when an issue comes along, unlike Philip, whose heart has been trained to look at human realities, she's able to walk into this thing and go, oh, a little bit of wine for a wedding, no problem for Jesus. She doesn't even know exactly what he's going to do. She doesn't tell the servants what he's going to do. She just says, do whatever he tells you. She just knows he's big enough for this one. He's got it covered. And that is the kind of faith we need to aspire to. That is the kind of faith we need to aspire to. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. You know that do whatever he tells you is, I think, the expression of the highest pinnacle of faith we can attain to as people. It's the highest pinnacle of faith. When you trust Jesus so much that you can go into a situation and you can say, Jesus, I trust you so much. I trust you so much in this situation that I'm willing to do, I just, I abandon myself and I say to you, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. When you are at that place, that is unstoppable faith. It's unstoppable faith. The powers of darkness, all the powers of hell cannot withstand the kind of faith that says, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Can't stand against that. Now, I'm not saying that if you have that kind of faith, things are always going to turn out great and you're never going to hurt. I just talked to you about suffering. But what I do mean is that in the suffering, you will always overcome because God's purposes for you in that suffering will always be fulfilled. And his kingdom will most certainly be advanced in your situation. If you just say to God, I'm abandoned to you. I trust you so much. I know you're big enough to take care of this. I will do whatever you tell me. In that situation, his kingdom will win. His kingdom will win. Unstoppable faith. Our community, our families, our kids, my kids, 
our country desperately need to see faith like this. For the most part here in Canada, I include myself in this, we have modeled to our fellow Canadians a pitiful, powerless faith. We've just modeled to them a pitiful, we've modeled to them not even a Philip faith. You know, at least in Philip's case, he was close to Jesus, and Jesus still did some amazing stuff, and at the end, Philip got to grow through it. But many of us go through life week after week after week. We come into church, we say we believe in God, we say he can do everything. And if someone will ask us, do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Do you believe he's the God of the universe? Yes. And then we panic and fret, and our marriages fall apart, and we do all of that junk just like everybody else. So it's powerless, it's pitiful, it's pathetic. Why? Part of it is we do not have a sovereign mindset. We do not truly believe that God is in control. We are absolutely terrified that the things that are happening to us are out of his control and we do not trust that he's bigger than everything we're facing. Second of all, we have trained our minds so fully on the world that when we are faced with obstacles, we, unlike Mary who had trained and treasured in her heart the things of God, so when the time came, her heart was just ready, of course I trust in God, that's all I've been thinking about for the last 30 years. But we have just so filled our minds. I know Christian guys, 15, 20 plus hours a week following sports. Nothing wrong with following sports, but in some cases it's become such an obsession. It's like a part-time job. You are not going to have a revelation of Jesus that is this big when your mind is filled with petty things that are this big. We could talk about sports, we could talk about anything, but we've just trained our minds on things of the world. So of course, when our marriage starts to fall apart, we don't have a picture of Jesus there to stabilize us. Our heart isn't anchored in the Holy One. We need Jesus, and we need to treasure up the things of Jesus. We need to treasure up the Word of God in our hearts so that when we hit tough times, we have faith that stands. Our neighbors, our coworkers, don't need to see Christians. You know, some people think um, the thing that attracts people to Jesus is when we're wealthy and we have BMWs and we're healthy all the time. That doesn't attract people to Jesus. It attracts people to BMWs. They don't want Jesus. They want your BMW. Okay, I'll go after Jesus. He's going to give me a BMW. That's not loving Jesus. They don't need to see people who don't suffer. They need to see people who f- walk into suffering with faith and who overcome, who go into death, and even if they die, they overcome in death. They need to see people who go into long-term marriage difficulties and it looks like this is an absolute disaster that will never be put back together and see a person who goes into that with faith and forgiveness and loves Jesus and comes out on the other side victorious and they go, wow, I want that. Mary faith. But you can't have Mary faith when your mind is consumed with the world. And so at some point here, something has to change, something has to shift where we say, that's it, I am making real changes to my life, but I want to start walking with Mary faith instead of Philip faith. Do whatever he tells you, and out of that comes radical obedience, and out of radical obedience, the power of God can really move. So, we're going to do a bunch of this at the prayer summit on Tuesday, but three things, weekly challenge, and I'll pray for you, and then we'll sing. Challenge, number one, develop a sovereign mindset. I can't think of a a more important exercise, a more important mindset to develop in our hearts. And it takes practice. 
But take some time this week, write down three or four tough things you've gone through in your life. And prayerfully ask God to reveal to you what things he was working in your life through those difficulties. Just write down, you know, you went through this when you were a kid or you went through this when you were a young adult and it was really horrible and you never stopped to think. You've just sort of blotted it out of your mind. You never stopped to think, that was a really hard thing I went through. I wonder, God, what were you working in me through that? Write down whatever he shows you and then thank him for his sovereignty and goodness. Second, to tune you to the spirit in your problems. Write down, take one or two big challenges in your life. Just take a devotional time to do this. Just take your time. And sit down and write down, what are some of the big challenges I'm facing in my life right now? And then tune to the Spirit and say, Spirit, what are you trying to do in this? Like maybe what the Spirit is saying is, I want to do a miracle and blow your mind. Maybe what the Spirit is saying, I want to humble you and work in your character. Or whatever he's saying. But tune to the Spirit. What are you doing in me through this thing? And then last of all, radical obedience. Tell God you will do whatever he asks of you in those problem situations. Ask him for an assignment and then step out and do it and watch the power of God. I'll tell you, you will experience joy. You know, sometimes we, we put, you, you put the words radical obedience up there and if any of you is like me, for most of my life when I see the terms radical and obedience put together in a church service, I'm, I'm, I get nervous. A cold sweat breaks out. I'm like, oh, God's going to ask me to go to Africa. I'll never see my kids again. And I'm so scared what God's going to ask me to do. You know what? God is not going to ask you to do ridiculous stuff. He, what he's going to ask, but he is going to ask for your life. And here's the thing I'm finding more and more, and I'm not there yet. I'm not, oh, Chris has got radical obedience in the bag. He's moved to the next one. That's a lifelong thing. I'm nowhere close yet. But slowly I'm learn, losing my nervousness the better I get to know Jesus because what I've found is when I tell him that and then I do whatever he tells me, the joy it unlocks. The joy it unlocks. That is life. You say, Jesus, whatever you want. And then, he gives you a little thing because he knows you're scared to death and you go and you do it and you go, oh, that was awesome. I just took a risk for Jesus. I just obeyed him. This is life. That's what he made us for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would grow us in merry faith. I pray that you would grow us in merry faith. May we turn aside from the worldly petty things that consume us, Jesus. It's not about bad. It's not about feeling guilty. It's not about being unspiritual. It's about finding a deeper, greater joy. It's about finding something better than all that pettiness. When we turn away from the pettiness and we treasure up the things of God, the things of you in our hearts, that we begin to grow in faith. And Lord, I know sitting here today are numbers, many situations with children, with finances, with business, with marriages that look absolutely hopeless. And my prayer is this week, Jesus, begin to give us a sovereign mindset. Lord, I pray that we will begin to be victorious. We will begin to have faith in these situations to really hope and to know that you can carry us through and deliver us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.